0: We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. One of the things that makes Australia great is our richness of diversity. There are people from so many cultural backgrounds, language groups, and belief systems which influences the way that they want to live and shape their buildings. Allowing for these differences in the architecture process can raise some interesting opportunities. When an architect works with a client from a different background, they'll need to learn how to design for that client's needs, and the architect might not have experienced that before. It's these collaborations that can help the way Australian buildings evolve over time. However, when buildings are designed to meet the needs of large numbers of people in Australia, the results sometimes only meet the minimum requirements for a narrow demographic of our diverse community. By working with an architect, it should be possible to get much closer to the individual needs of all the people who make up our rich multicultural society. I'm Daniel Moore and in today's episode of Hearing Architecture, we've asked architects from around Australia how empathy, understanding and diversity impacts their clients and the community. Many people say that architects are problem solvers, but that doesn't mean the architecture profession doesn't have any problems with diversity. In 2013, architecture was still dominated by men, with people identifying as female representing approximately 21% of registered architects. In addition to that, Out of the approximate 11,000 architects in Australia, there are only six registered Indigenous architects working in private practice, with an estimated 70 working at other levels of practice. These numbers have led the profession to look at itself in more depth to try to understand why the diversity that we see in some educational institutions doesn't transition into practice. Jeefa Greenaway talks about the way the architecture profession in Australia is beginning to reflect and encourage more diversity in the workplace.
1: Diversity and empathy within an architectural context is something that the profession is very much grappling with. It's really starting to be interrogated much more. So if we think of things like gender or cultural diversity within practice, it has tended in the past to be very monocultural. And I think that is to our detriment. It hasn't fully reflected the diversity of our own community. And if we look at the Australian context, we are very multicultural. If you look at our universities, close to 50% of all our graduates are, are women. But if we then interrogate that in terms of the profession, that's not reflected. And so there's often these glass ceilings for women to advance through the profession and they are not in the upper echelon, in the sort of executive level very often at all. If you then also look at it in, in the context of diversity of cultures, again, you could argue it's, it's a very sort of Anglo-Saxon, white, middle-aged man sort of perspective on the profession has predominated. But that is, is certainly starting to shift. And you know we've had conversations around, in the indigenous context of there being an ochre ceiling of Indigenous people, again, not really advancing or there's been inhibitors there, um, particularly in terms of entry firstly into university. So providing those pathways and lateral opportunities into the university, is kind of the biggest hurdle first and foremost. But then how one then progresses through one's journey through architecture is certainly important. And I think we should certainly be advocating to demonstrate that the profession should be accessible to all. And that requires a particular resolve. It requires a resolve of the industry, of academia, of the peak design bodies to all lean in and and say, well, we need to change this. And it's it's starting to happen. And so in the Indigenous context, we have certainly been pushing hard to say, well, our voices should be reflected in in the environment. We should draw upon our our deep history and tap into our rich heritage and, and diversity of Indigenous nations that existed and then find pathways for Indigenous people into the profession. And the time is right now. I think we've got to a level of, of sophistication where we can have these conversations. And we're starting to say, well, sometimes it's actually about interrogating our own role. And can we become the champions of change in this space? And some of the key drivers and, and key leaders within the profession can certainly become active participants in this space and develop policies within practices to facilitate diversity and certainly we're seeing with a large cohort of international students coming through our universities we're seeing certainly um, greater numbers of a diversity of different cultures coming through and then obviously they're seeking opportunities too through uh, work experience and the like. So it's, it's certainly starting to turn I think but there's certainly much more work to do.
0: That was Jaffa Greenaway from Greenaway Architects, based in Melbourne. When it comes to architectural practice, the diversity of clients' needs is also extremely broad. Some clients know their specific needs, and others require those needs to be teased out. So when architects work for client groups with different backgrounds to their own, it's really important for an architect to understand what the differences are so they can effectively design for them. Shanine Fanton and Belinda Allwood discuss how everyone's background affects the way they will experience the architectural process and how having a strong sense of empathy can benefit an architect's process.
2: Well, I think the first thing to understand is that every situation that you work in will be potentially a culturally different situation to your own because... Although, I'll give you an example, so the lens that you have as a human is affected by all your socio-cultural experiences of growing up. So mine are impacted by my experience growing up on a farm in far north Queensland, growing up in an Australian-Italian family. That's my cultural lens and it's contributed to with a number of other factors. Even when I'm working with people who are from European descent and speak English, their socio-cultural are going to be different from mine. And so I think one of the issues we have in the world is that there's a lot of um, unconscious bias and assumptions. And so every time you work with a new human, then you should be thinking, well, how do they see the world? What drives them to be presenting this design brief and what's informing their decisions or their vision behind it? And I don't think that, that many, many architects actually think in that way. I think sometimes they do. So that level of empathy and understanding and listening I think is um, critical in creating socially sustainable communities and I think it's obviously more evident when you're working with people from a really different cultural background from your own, whether they're a new migrant to Australia or whether they're from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander descent or from another socio-cultural background. but that's a really obvious difference. I think we should be treating everyone with the same level of potential difference, but we're a bit blind to that. So what do we do? We observe carefully and listen carefully to people. We employ active listening. We record and document the needs of people. If it's a residential client, We try and understand how people live currently, or even if it's um, not residential, if it's educational or health, we need to understand what the intent is of how they do their work currently. So for us, there's a little bit of ethnography or anthropology in the beginning of architecture so that you understand what the design brief really is rather than making assumptions. So in this kind of process that you go through, which I'll call an intercultural design process, in the longer term, it should lead to co-education between the architect and the client so that they understand how architects do their work. And so we try to understand what the essence of the drivers behind the design brief is. And in that, through that process, then hopefully there's the creation of something new or unique or different to what you would otherwise expect.
3: I think the only thing I can really add to that is um, having empathy and understanding is also about being able to recognise in a a project, say for instance a community project or a public project where there may not be the level of empathy and understanding between stakeholders uh, in a project, but being able to use the, the process, the design process or the early stages of design in relationship building to be able to demonstrate or illustrate to stakeholders that there are other points of view or perhaps the balance of power in stakeholder relationships is, is not equitable. So we, we do have a role and also a responsibility if, if the project is to have really responsive social outcomes to advocate for voices that, that may not be quite so dominant on the project So sharing the empathy and understanding.
2: Yeah, that's really important. So that's the brokerage role or the agency role. And to do that role well, you need to be able to see what's going on for various stakeholders and then try and mediate between them. But you also can't do that role unless you've had some kind of mini immersion or experience with your client in terms of their cultural lens of what's going on. It means that in the front end of a project, let's say we were to work with... um, Cairns has a large Bhutanese community here. Let's say we were asked to work on a project for the Bhutanese community. I know next to nothing about Bhutanese culture and people, and so what we would have to do, I think, initially, is give ourselves an immersive deep dive in Bhutanese belief systems. If they're, you know, Hindu people or not, they may be something else too and also in day-to-day beliefs and living patterns so that we could understand their intent behind the design brief of a project. Now if we weren't to do any of that as architects then I think the process may not go as smoothly as if you have an attempt to do that.
0: That was Shanine Fanton and Belinda Allwood from POD based in Cairns designing for everyone is a great aspiration in a project it means that more people will be able to safely use whatever is built sometimes the standards and guidelines that force architects to design this way might seem like they're getting in the way of the design goals of a project but when the guidelines are creatively incorporated into a building it can produce exciting results andrew maynard tells us why designing for the fringes doesn't have to negatively impact the majority of people who use a building
4: architects are trained in empathy. It's part of our charter is to service the public good and yet there's this stereotype that architects only serve the rich. And that might be related to the DIY question. Australians thinking we can just do it ourselves what do we need this idiot for that costs as much as my bathroom and kitchen put together. But I, I think that you'll find that that's how we trained is to empathise and to think more broadly about culture and the people within that. So I always think about best way to implement that as a designer is try to design for the fringes like if you design something for both that works for both the elderly and the young the you know people with different abilities or disabilities and different cultures outside the norm when you do that guess what happens the people that fit neatly in the middle that are being served by every other <laughs> service out there are still being served it's just that other people are as well It's not as though you make something more accessible. It excludes people, just includes more people, but the people that are safely in the middle are still safely in the middle. So empathy and understanding is fundamental to being able to produce good humanist design. Otherwise, if you're not doing that, we're probably just decorators. And the architects that I know are not decorators. They're thinking about much bigger issues, even when they're dealing with something as simple as a bathroom. You know, they've got a lot on their mind. And I would say that's empathy. They care about the human condition.
0: That was Andrew Maynard from Austin Maynard Architects, based in Melbourne. Working for a client whose needs are very different to your own is definitely going to have a learning curve. There's going to be a lot of learning about the client, and some of this learning might be about generations of living differently. Bringing together an architect's building knowledge with their client's unique or difficult brief is where an architect usually solves a lot more problems. Sue Dugdale shares some of her experiences that have informed her strategies for managing how much she can contribute to a project and when listening takes priority.
5: Empathy and understanding are important as we work with more than just our brains. (laughs) They form the basis of caring about others And that's a strong motivator for me and my work, and I'm assuming for many other architects. I've given a lot of thought as to how architects can work in cultural situations that differ from their own. And I've been in this situation many times over the years. I have a kind of dual philosophy about this. One is that I need to be practical and humble enough to accept that I can't know everything about some clients and about their lives and about their culture and to hand them the tools to make their own decisions. And then the other plank of my philosophy is that I need to accept that I am a trained professional with valuable skills and knowledge to offer. For example, on environmental design or on the properties of different materials, on cost effectiveness in design and in synthesizing different elements together. So I find that dual approach tells me when to sort of stand back and listen and when to step forward and speak and offer something. And so based on this, I've invented in the past, invented some techniques to facilitate projects and the kind of communication I've done with clients. A number of years ago, I did some housing work at a remote community called Neurope, and we had to produce, I think, designs for about a dozen houses. The first part of the project was locating the houses in the community. There were perhaps about 20 or 25 service blocks, and we had to locate about a dozen houses but of course neurope community has two main language groups who have a certain r- relationship to each other and then with each of the language groups people have family allegiances and ties and cultural relationships to observe whether they're avoidance relationships or close relationships of obligation and for me to find my way through that and to understand it all would have been huge you know i'd probably need an anthropology degree and to spend a, a year or two there to actually unravel it all and so we understood that we couldn't really work it out. So what we did was we took a plan of the community and we laminated it and um, we put everyone's, the, each household, we put the names on a little bit of paper and blue tacked it onto the map where they said they wanted their house. But then we went away and we left the plan at the community in the community council office and we came back in a month. All the little names were on different spots and everyone was completely happy And to this day, I do not know why they were located where they were, but I know that they knew why they were located where they were. So they, I think, did all their negotiations and and cultural um, communications and and worked out what needed to be worked out. Another technique we used on that same project came out of my awareness that we as architects are often referred to as seagulls, which is... Something I've heard Perth architect Kieran Wong quite recently, amongst other people, where we we fly into communities, we have a lot to say, we shuttle all over the place and then we fly out. Um, and so uh, an aspect of that is that we come and we do all this heartfelt consultation and listen to people and write down everything they want, and we go away and we do the designs and we get them costed and we come back and we say The computer says no, you can't have that because it's too expensive or whatever. So I I just thought for people, the people being consulted at Bush, it must be heartbreaking and and just frustrating and probably is a better word than heartbreaking to to be part of this process. So at that point, we were designing houses with a fairly simple structural system. So we knew the structural span that we were typically using and what size rooms would typically be. So we created a little component system model of models where we modeled bedrooms and lounge rooms and kitchens and verandas and we put price tags on them. And there was a budget for the project. So we told each household that they had at that point, it might've been two or $300,000 to spend. They built their house from this model, putting the rooms together in the layout they wanted. Then they took, I handed them the calculator. They added up the figures and it's like, oops, you know, they're like $50,000 over. We'll have to take off that bedroom and the third bathroom, and then it adds up to the right amount. And so it not only short-circuited the whole project by months, it gave them the agency to both design the layout of their house with the members of their family, if they chose, and to be in control of their budget. And so it was a very simple communication tool, but it worked really well, and they really appreciated it. So that anecdote leads to the point that nearly all design is led to some extent by economy. I think some people think that when you're working cross-culturally and often with indigenous people that you have these kind of, you know, amazing aspirations about spirituality or something. But really everyone understands that projects have have a level of resourcing, essentially money, and understand that that has to be worked with. Yeah, so designing for other cultures doesn't alter this Everyone does understand that projects have limited resources. And in fact, projects that don't have a clear budget or a clear process for finding one are likely to end up in a big mess.
0: That was Sue Dugdale from Sue Dugdale and Associates, based in the Northern Territory. Learning about a new community in your own country will usually have the benefit of shared language. When an architect works internationally, it can include even more cultural differences. Dick Jarman, who's worked extensively around the globe, shares how he needed to adapt when he worked with a whole range of people from different cultures to his own.
6: I've worked in Australia, both mainland and Tasmania. I've worked in Japan, I've worked in China, and I've worked in Europe and the Middle East, and I've taught in England. Um, Each place has a different cultural situation and I've learnt from them. And over time, I have developed my CQ, which is your cultural intelligence, difference from EQ and IQ. And I've been luckily taught by some very good people in that regard. When I was working in Japan, I had a elder statesman from the Toyota company who is retired, who came out of retirement to assist us in communicating our designs with the local people and taught me all about how Japanese meetings work and how to present things there because there's all sorts of uh, different ways which business is done with the term namawashi comes to mind which is the meeting you have before a meeting where the decisions are made and then you have a meeting after that to actually inform people of those decisions but you can't make other decisions in that meeting um, and it's, it's a very strange process and if someone hadn't taken me by the hand I would have taken a lot, lot longer to learn. I went to Dubai and worked on a project there where the people on site were a complete mix of groups of different cultures. The engineers were Pakistani, the client was Emirati, the quantity surveyor was Palestinian, the architects were Chinese-Singaporean and a mix of Filipino and, and local islanders, and the project manager was Egyptian. They all spoke English perfectly, but they all had a different language of business, which is somewhat coming from their culture and um, I was there to try and stitch (laughs) this communication back together again because it had fallen apart. And that's only possible because of my experience of working through a number of projects with different cultural people involved. I think something that a lot of people write about and they talk about when you work for another culture, you've got to understand their culture for it to be successful. But I think they also have to understand your culture somewhat to be able to trust your solutions. It's all very well to sort of understand the vernacular. But if you're as an outsider presenting it, you'll be often met with skepticism, unless you can actually somehow bring them aboard and give them an understanding of your own culture. And thereby, through that interaction, can something new acquire. I mean, you've got to ask, why are you working in another culture? And certainly our work in China, we were employed there regularly because the Chinese wanted different ideas to teach their design institutes different ways of doing things, to challenge things in in different ways. I think that's somewhat changing now. But when I was there over 10 years ago, that was what they were after. And so you were there to bring about this exchange to try and do things that were resonated with them, in our way and so that somehow out of that mixing of the two became something new and uh, and everyone was somehow rewarded for it.
0: That was Dick Jarman from Circa Nun, Nunn based in Hobart. Working on the same construction method in the same local area can really help architects master the craft of a specific building type but this can sometimes limit the amount of design development and testing because a particular building type won't allow for it. Professor Philip Tallis tells us how working on a project that may be out of your comfort zone can be a great way to learn from unfamiliar clients and push a project group to do something innovative.
7: So last year we were in the very interesting position of working on two Buddhist temples. Um, Now, I don't know a great deal about uh, Buddhism. I have been to China briefly, as it happened. I had been there just before we got these commissions, which was completely unrelated. One of the commissions is in fact with Glenn Merkitt who put us forward to assist him in this commission. So it's not just simply the temples, it's in fact a whole compound. And it's also trying to understand their ideas about sighting, um, about relationship to the sun, about relation to topography, about the rituals of um, the monks' daily routine. Glenn was lucky enough to be flown to China and experience 48 hours of the monks' routines and. Um, participate in that um, so we got that second hand through Glenn but it was pretty vivid. So I think again you've got to be open to the things that come your way and it's not just a question of being an opportunist but you just need to be ready and you need to have an attitude as Glenn told me of just being constantly curious and open to difference and What's amazing is you may never get a job like that again in your life. So we had one job at Taronga Zoo where we had to design a lemur house. Um, so that's a house for the lemurs which are um, primates from Madagascar now. We don't expect to corner the market in, in lemur houses. We may never do anything like that again. But I think you really need to throw yourself at the de- design challenge and the new things you learn on projects. I mean, projects are just incredibly interesting. So whether it's a Buddhist temple or a primate sanctuary or a children's playground or a rowing club, we may never get these opportunities again, but you take them with both hands and um, you learn something new with every project. One thing that unites all those projects I just mentioned is an attitude to the land and to sighting, to topography, to climate, and I think that um, that that um, disparate array of projects, each one of those, have deepened our understanding or response to those issues, and that's been allowed us to grow as architects.
0: That was Professor Philip Tellus from Hill Tellus Architecture and Urban Planning, based in Sydney. Every architecture project has unique requirements. Sometimes an architect is being asked to reference a specific building style that a client likes. Other times an architect is being asked to respond to a client's emotional or medical needs, and sometimes it's a combination of many different needs that don't sound like they should go together. Finding out what these needs are becomes difficult if an architect comes into a project with preconceived ideas of what the result will be. Joe Rees tells us about discussing a project with clients beyond what they're asking for right now, and how a client's needs change over time.
8: I think empathy and understanding are the critical difference that architects make to a project. When we talk to people, we listen to what they say. We also observe their patterns of lifestyle, so it's really important to understand how an existing commercial space is used, used, what's successful and what's not much the same as it is in a residence. What is working, what isn't? Let's build on the patterns that are working and why are they working? So it's a very detailed, time-consuming undertaking to explain and listen and be a part of that process of unravelling a design. In much the same way, I've come to understand that a judge, every time they're presented with a new type of industry, they have to really read up on it. They cannot call, make a call that affects people's lives without really understanding the nitty-gritty of what's going on for those people. Architects are the same. The idea exactly that we discussed before about Glenn Merkitt designing a mosque, he's not going to go and stick his lovely elongated extruded house section for a mosque. He does those things so well, but it's a different experience, it's a different pattern, it's a different activity, it's different people. That's what we bring to the table, and that's the difference that we make to really successful, great architecture. I think that we are sensitive to what people say, also in terms of what they can't express in words. So, that's it sort of involves intuition, but it's also a different way of listening. You can't just take at face value necessarily what someone says to you they need or want. You have to investigate it with something that goes underneath that to really understand what they're saying. So, and I think it's also important to understand that people. And what they want and need change over time and for different seasons and different times of the year and and that's quite important and can be overlooked. I've got a really great example of a project like that across the road from me where um, I met my clients who are also my friends now. now some years ago when I was working for another firm and at the time their children were teenagers And so they lived in an elevated tropical house and they wanted to build themselves a parents retreat pod (laughs) connected by a deck to the living room so they didn't have to interact with their growing children they thought that would solve all their problems so we drew that up and documented it and I think we even got a price from their builder because he lives just over there he's a friend of theirs too and then They thought about it and they said, actually, they put the brakes on. No, we don't need that actually after all, because by the time we got through all that, the kids had decided to go into state and study. So there was no point spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on building this parents' retreat when the house was empty. Then they came back to me some years later when I was working for myself, because I'd happened to bump into them and see them and then I happened to mention to them that I was going to be their (laughs) neighbour. And they said, that they wanted to go ahead with a whole backyard building. And what they were thinking was eventually they might retire into the new thing or subdivide, or so they would have two buildings. And so they thought that that would suit them over time. And actually we built it, it's over there now. And at the moment they rent it out, but what they intend sooner or later is to move into that and sell off the front half when that becomes possible. So I think it's really important to, Help your clients think through what happens in the future as well. Like, I have to tell you, a number of times I've desi- designed houses f- and new houses for um, clients that have young children, and trying to get them to think beyond toddlers falling downstairs is quite hard because it's a really engaging phase of parenting, <laughs> it's trying to stop your kids falling downstairs, but it does not last forever.
0: <laughs> that was Joe Reese from Ajar Architects, based in the Northern Territory designing a project for longevity is always on the architect's to-do list. For this to happen, an architect needs to know more than just the very basics of how big or small the different rooms in a house should be. This is because the function of a building is as unique as the client's lifestyle, so the more an architect knows about a client, the more they'll understand how the building should work for them. Jessica Mountain and Emily Van Eyck tell us about one of their projects where the design of the house changed the more the client shared about themselves.
9: I I suppose I wouldn't understand if you didn't take it seriously. You're taking someone else's needs, aspirations, wants, requirements and then turning it into a work of architecture. So you, you do need to understand where they're coming from, otherwise you'll get it wrong. And that's as simple as it gets. There's a really clear example we have where we were designing a a little addition for some um, clients, and they wanted this access to underneath their house. And we kept on thinking it was just like a, you know, like an access way for storage. It's no big deal. And then a little way into the project, they told us that they have poetry and. (laughs) whiskey nights (laughs) (laughs) under the house and so it just changed the project completely and I'd be like okay so maybe you need a a decent sized space down there a nice way to get there a bit more of a ritualistic kind of understanding of the space so if we didn't understand that which we didn't at first then we would never know to design that it is a relationship that you form with your clients and you are designing their home so it, it does get quite personal and it is finding out those particular details that sometimes can make all the difference. So it's just really important that like kind of initial brief writing stage Mm -hmm. and to you know, go back and forth and really refine that with your client. And if there are parts of the building that you yourself like, oh, do they, do they really need that room? What are they using that room for? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just having those conversations and often as the example that Emily said, um, it is something quite specific that you might have completely or thought they were going to be using it quite differently. Um, and that can range from something quite big or something quite small. Yeah. So it's just that continuing conversation and the fact that the brief is something that's changing all the time and just continue to up, update that. Yeah, and like I'm always telling my students, reread your brief. <laughs> like I should do that, like far more often. <laughs> yeah.
0: That was Jessica Mountain and Emily Van Eyck from Mount Eyck Architects, based in Perth. Some clients can clearly put into words what they want and some find that more difficult. For these clients, an architect has to try and get on the same level as their client so they can understand what they mean when they talk about the results they're looking for. Kylie Shunens tells us how she works towards getting inside a client's head so the whole project team understands what the outcome of a project should be.
10: Really one of the keys for me is getting inside my client's head and really understanding what the key drivers they have for their project. So with that, skill comes a level of empathy and understanding of where they've come from and why they actually need these projects to occur. And that is critical to the success of a project. It doesn't matter who that client is. If you don't have an understanding of why they need what they need and why they need to do what they need to do and how they need to operate within that building, you're not going to have an effective relationship or project outcome with them so really that is is a, is a key in regards to how this outcome happens spending time with your client and understanding the brief up front and really engaging with them to ensure that that is then translated into the project and that that is explained and understood by everyone on the consultant team is is critical and making sure that you check back in with them through various touch points along the project is also really important. I think that being able to explain those reasons to a client as well is important because it might mean that you are actually coming at them from a completely different angle to what they were thinking you would be during the design phase. But I think having all those different angles is just as important. It's also about challenging ideas and challenging the position in which people approach design. So quite often you would have a design approached from a space planning exercise that is a bit of a numbers game to begin with. That would be more of an economically led design. For me it's about challenging the ideas, understanding the cultural backgrounds but understanding the community benefits and what outcomes the community will be able to derive from the project before actually moving headfirst into a design is how we like to approach it and I mean that goes for whether it's a public building whether it's an apartment building or in the case of a residential home how the community or that family will interact with that space.
0: That was Kylie Shinnans from Fratel Group based in Perth. It's true that architects get a great deal of joy designing buildings and sometimes the line is blurred between whether the design of a building is for the client's benefit or the architect's. This might be because sometimes there's a disconnect between what an architect thinks the project goals are and what the client actually wants to achieve. Making sure that the architect and client are working together is sometimes the difference between a project that a client loves every day or a project that doesn't even get off the ground. Lee Hillam tells us what simple skills she thinks is the best way to connect with a client and to empathize with what they really need.
11: It's just listening and it's listening and it's listening some more. And I was reminded the other day about a, a quote that comes from Pulp Fiction. I think someone said it was from Pulp Fiction where someone says, are you listening to me? Or are you just waiting to talk? And I think that so many people are doing that, you know, they're they're listening, they think they're listening to their clients but their mind's actually worrying on what they want to do on the building and what their ideas are and, and, and more how they're going to convince the client of that than how they can fit an idea around or generate an idea out of what the clients are saying. And again, you know, we go to university and we're designing in a bubble, there aren't clients. And if there were clients, I think we'd, we'd probably never make it through the degree because clients do present a level of challenge that perhaps you're not ready for when you're just, you know, fledgling architect. But that's what you need to do once you You need to make this transition between designing, you know, a, an interesting idea that responds to an interesting brief that's going to impress your tutor into actually responding to what the client wants and needs. And, yeah, of course there's going to be a certain amount of manipulation of that client brief because clients aren't architects and they often don't even understand how to articulate what they need and what they want. So you need to sort of bring them along and educate them a little bit about what they, what they actually do need, not what they think they need. But generally, they do have a fairly good idea of what needs to happen. And if you go off on a tangent with your big idea, then it, you know so many times those projects will just quietly die, and you won't know why, really. But I, I suspect that it's back to this idea of that the client never got a chance to own it, never got a chance to um, feel like they were contributing to it or it was being generated out of what they needed. And so therefore they're, they're not related to it, so they can just cut it off. They can just kill it. <laughs> it needs that they need to feel related. To, to the project so I think we do need to understand we are we do take it seriously and we we do need to understand but we also need to get better at that and put our egos aside and so so much can be blamed on the whole image culture that you've got to um, end up with something that's understandable in a photograph that you know makes a good image but I don't think we can use that as an excuse I think we actually need to Just make great buildings and worry about Instagram later.
0: This has been Episode 8 of Hearing Architecture. Thank you so much for listening. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. This episode of Hearing Architecture featured the following guests Chief Greenaway, Shanine Fanton, Belinda Allwood, Andrew Maynard, Sue Dugdale, Dick Jarman, Professor Philip Tallis, Joe Reese, Jessica Mountain, Emily Van Eyck, Kylie Shunans, and Lee Hillam. The interviews in this episode were produced around Australia by Imagine committee members Jamila Jahangiri, Daniel Hall, Kirsty Voles, Callie Marnane, Chris Morley, Sam McQueney, Rhys Curry, Brad Weatherall, Jess Beaver, Bede Taylor, Rebecca Webster, and Daniel Moore. The AIA production team was Daniela Crawley, Stacey Rodder, Monique Woodwood and Tom McKenzie. Produced by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.